Added Time is sponsored by Bank of Ireland, who are giving their place on the Leinster jersey to the Irish Heart Foundation for a day in support of the CPR for Schools programme. There's a hastily scribbled note on the desk here from the regular Added Time host, Malachy Clerken. It's hard to read all of it, but the first line is definitely so long, suckers. And then there's something further on about a holiday or a holy day. So he's either soaking up the sun in Spain or he's found God. Either way, good Could for be him. a beach in Monaghan? <laughs> Maybe. There, I don't know how many beaches there is in Monaghan, but um, I'm Pat Nugent filling in his absence. And um, thankfully, I'm joined by Mary Hannigan, who answered the bat signal this week. How, how are you, Mary? Hiya, Pat. I'm good. Um, Mary, I know you were watching Mo Salah during the week when he... We don't know what his next trick will be, basically. Mm. He might levitate, he might make the Mary. Statue of Liberty disappear. We he might store, score against Stoke. Yeah. Uh, but last night he finally got under Jose Mourinho's it skin. It did, it did. Uh, Jose spoke to ESPN and now I won't read out every time you refer to the fact that he bought Salah for Chelsea but just to give you a flavour people say I was the one who sold Salah and it is the opposite I bought Salah next I was the one who bought Salah I was the one who told Chelsea to buy Salah it was me in charge when Salah came to Chelsea okay it goes on and on and on like that and it finishes up effectively I did buy Salah I didn't sell Salah but it doesn't matter I think it does I think it does matter doesn't it Jose yeah He's feeling a little bit like the Decca man, I think, kind of turning down the Beatles or, or something <laughs> like that. Or um, the publisher, when Frank Baum sent in his script of The Wizard of Oz, the publisher wrote back that it was too radical a departure from traditional juvenile literature and rejected it. And it's since sold about 50 billion copies. So, but at least Jose had Salah, as we know. He brought him to Chelsea, so he's correct about that. So the big issue then is, did he reject him, like, and get rid of him, or what's the story? It's funny, though, that he's finally come out. His indestructible ego has clearly yes. been piqued by <laughs> the amount of people saying, oh, if Jose is so great, why did you sell Salah and De Bruyne and Lukaku? That's it. Yeah. The, the top two contenders for Player of the Year this year, De Bruyne and Salah, and they were both fellas that Jose clearly reckoned weren't going to kind of make the grade at Chelsea. But he is technically correct. Jose was gone when Chelsea sold Salah. But um, they had loaned him to Roma with a view to Roma making the deal permanent. So presumably they wouldn't have sold him if at any point Jose had decided the fella had a bit of potential and might be worth keeping. So, um, yeah, hasn't been a good... good. Uh, but like these things happen, lots of managers. There was a great line way back from Terry Neal when he was Arsenal manager. He had the chance uh, to buy a Dutch player for 200000 but he said, nah, he's too lazy and indisciplined. And that was Rude Hullet. Oh, God. So we all make mistakes, I suppose. Yeah. And in fairness, it's just a fun stick to beat Jose it with, is. really, isn't it? It is. We all just kind of enjoy doing it. Every manager on the planet has left quality players go. Yeah, true um, enough. So um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just laugh at Jose just because it's fun to do, we you know? Yeah. Um, right, we have a packed podcast today. Later on, we're going to be joined by Tony Evans, the author of a new book, Two Tribes, which touches on Liverpool Football Club, Thatcher. England in the 80s and hooliganism which is very relevant given events of the last week we're also going to be joined by Johnny Waterson to talk about Katie Taylor's title fight on Saturday night in Brooklyn and now in the studio we're delighted to be joined by Ina Reardon our athletics correspondent and a true athletics great Sonia O'Sullivan Sonia it's great to have you here Good morning nice to see you You're uh, not usually in this uh, hemisphere yeah, is there a, there's a particular reason though that you're in Ireland at the moment? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm over here for a few runs. Um, tomorrow morning, I'm going to do my hundredth park run, um, which is um, out in Kevin Teeley Park. Right. Um, I've never run there before, but um, it's part of a whole group of runs. Um, there are 88 of them now around Ireland, um, and you can sign up for free. It's parkrun.ie. I've been doing them since 2005 when they first started in Bushy Park in London. And um, now there's like, I think there's thousands of people all around Ireland do them every Saturday morning. They take place in the UK, in Australia and a few other countries are joining on the bandwagon as well. Um, But we're lucky enough in Ireland, you know, it's a free event um, every Saturday morning, 9.30. You just need to look up the website and find a park close to you and go down there and join in with the masses. And, you know, it's free to the people, but it's um, been supported by VHI, our sponsors of the Irish version to, I suppose, 
give it, you know, a boost. And tomorrow is definitely going to be a boost in Cabin Teeley. They're going to put on a special event to welcome me there. Excellent. Um, I'm not the only person to run 100. Many people have. Some have even run 250. Um, but every now and then, you know, you have to do a special event and they will have, you know, tea and coffee and snacks and I think physio and everything afterwards to, you know, I suppose encourage more people to come along and join in the fun. And it's really... It's more more than just a run, five kilometres. It's more about the whole, I suppose, running community coming together and welcoming new people to sign up. And, you know, whenever I go along, there's always first timers. So they're always kind of the ones who, I suppose, highlight the actual event every weekend. People who like the idea of getting out and saying that they were running with an Olympian, I guess. That's right. And, you know, you don't have to run the whole thing either. You can run and walk. And, you know, there are many people who start off walking and, um, you know, they are the ones who get the most encouragement at the end. And then they're the ones who improve the most over time as well. It's a great phenomenon, Pat. By the way, people say like the park when it's not competitive and it's not about times. But I guarantee you the first thing people look at when they cross the line is their, <laughs> is their time. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's great to have that. And yeah, a chance to run with Sonia in the morning. And, uh, and you're doing another one the following week, Sonia, aren't you? Down um, in Cork, is that the plan? No, no, I'm actually doing one in, um, I'm going west next week. I'm going to Clare Morris to do, um, but uh, I'm debating I might volunteer over there because that's the other part of park run is that you can volunteer as well and you can help out. And you're you, trying to get out of doing um, the run area. Yeah, <laughs> but it depends. I have to check the course. Like this Cabin Teeley one, there's a few hills out there. They didn't tell me that till I signed up for it. Um, but but sat- Saturday um, morning in Cabin Teeley, if you want to get out there and run, do uh, chance to uh, chance to um, race Sonia Sullivan. There'll be plenty of chance to beat me. And and the great thing about it is, you know, by lunchtime you'll get an email. And it will tell you, you know, what time you ran, what place you were, you know, where you were, where you finished in your category, you know, in your man or woman or um, age, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then there's a per age percentage as well. So you can click on that. And depending on your age, you're kind of weighted against the rest of the field and how well you do. Excellent. So it's, it's very it, interesting. It's a, and it sounds like a lot of fun. That could ruin your it's great fun. Saturday summer if you're kind of It's kind of miserable. Um, so from the, the light or lighter side of running to a slightly um, murkier issue, um, Ian, the debate over hyperandrogenism, if I can still use that word, and indeed, mainly to do with Castor Semenya, it took another turn during the week. Can you bring us up to speed with where we are at the moment on this issue? Yeah, sure. And I think it's good. That's why we have Sonia here this morning as well, because this is an issue that, that's been, look, it's not a new issue. It probably does go back to 2009 in terms of when Castor Semenya first came on the scene, the World Championships in Berlin. She was young, 18-year-old, I think first time out of South Africa, and she, she won the event pretty handy by 156. And I think it was pretty obvious then that she... I think has something above and beyond the normal, the normal, um, the normal range for, for that for that age of an athlete. Um, now, subsequently, now this was never this was never sort of made public or not, but um, the condition was hyperandrogenism, whereby female athletes produce testosterone levels well above the normal range. I think normal range for women is between zero to one point seven nanomils per liter. If you go up to sort of the five to ten, you're going into male territory, and then ten to thirty is obviously male territory. So, and it's it's a it's a well known advantage for for track and fields, um, specifically looks looks like the eight hundred meters. So anyway, this, the the IWF by way of regulating this brought in a rule in tw- about twenty thirteen, whereby these intersex athletes um, would need to lower their their testosterone levels by 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 basically contraceptives, and then they would be they would be free to compete. That rule was thrown out. It was challenged to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. It was thrown out. They were given two years to come back with a kind of a an alternative uh, regulation or something that would be a bit more um, more evidence based. I suppose they come up with this regulation this week, whereby only women's events from the four hundred meters to the mile. Um, if if your if your testosterone level goes above the five nanomils per liter, you will have to lower by by hormonal therapy. Otherwise, you're still free to compete in sort of national events and um, domestic events. You're still to comp- you're free to compete against the men. But if you want to compete in these women specific events, you will have to lower your your testosterone. It doesn't just apply to Castor Semenya, but I think I think she's won something like. 40 of her last 800 meter races. She's pretty much unbeaten since 2016 when the rule was lifted. So it looks like if she does not comply with these regulations, well, she's either going to have to move up to a different distance or we may see a different cast or Semenya on the track. But that's the, uh, I suppose, that's the, that's the, that's the print, the, the, the raw print of it. But when you actually try to weigh up whether it's going to stick or not, that's where it gets a bit more complicated. Yeah, Son, you wrote a fascinating column in The Times recently on this and where you said it may be time to award more than three medals to allow athletes with hyperandrogenism and hyperandrogenism to compete in women's races. After all athletes cross the line, then the medals should be awarded by category if the need be. And in a way, the 
AF actually took a step kind of towards that solution this week, didn't they? Yeah, well, they've been working on this for quite a while now and they've had a lot of, a, a massive medical team working with them and who've really, you know, researched it and um, went through all the details and tried to work out, you know, the difference between, you know, men and women because athletics is a sport where there are two categories, men and women. And in recent years, particularly over the women's 800, it's been noticed that there you know, are some athletes who are kind of in a grey area. So, you know, they're a bit too, I suppose, they've got too much extra muscle mass, whatever it is that allow them to run with so much greater power and ability than what we categorise as women, but yet not great enough to be categorised as men. So mm-hmm. it's a very difficult area to sort it out. And I, I think when the IAAF was challenged on the original ruling after, I think it was two th- around 2000, after 2009, um, and then the athletes were allowed to go, you know, return to the normal. Castor Semenya, there was a period of time where her particularly, and there was a couple of, there was another girl from Kenya as well at the time, and they supposedly, like nobody knows for sure because, you know, they haven't released their medical records because it's private. Um, they, their time slowed down and they didn't run as well. But then when this ruling of medication that was required to be taken was lifted again, to me, it seemed like it was free for all. And, you know, well, now they can come out and anybody can run. And, you know, I think a lot of the talk about this is on kind of Castor Semenya's shoulders because she's the one who stands out, but she's not the only one. And it's unfair that, you know, you talk about her and I suppose she's named all the time in all these stories because... And I suppose it is because she is the best and she wins all the races. Um, But there are probably many out there. And, you know, with this new ruling now and with the ability of the IAAF to test for levels of testosterone in women, a bit like, I suppose, when they test for hematocrit levels in your blood, um, they may uncover, you know, that this runs even deeper. Mm. And that could probably cause even more problems like, you know, there may be even more women out there who are benefiting from having a bit more masculine kind of tendencies, whether it's aggression, um, you know, because of the way they were born. You know, it may be very difficult to draw the line and there will be an even bigger grey area. So I suppose when you do that, then then you may realise that maybe you do have to have another category. That is the thing. I mean, it is so hard to know how... It's not a straight line that we yes. can draw between male and female here. Yeah, and again, I'm, and Sonia touched on something there. First of all, like this, this is look. I mean, this is obviously something you're born with. It's a perfectly natural condition and absolutely through no fault. And it's completely separate to like you know, obviously, when you talk about, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's two issues here really. We talk about advantages in sport, and there's always be genetic freaks like you know the Usain Bolt, or the the Michael Phelps, or the Ian Thorpe's, like you know. But this is different, whereby we're dealing with, and they use this term now, DSD. That's a new term. That's a that's a, a difference in sexual development, and this this is what they're trying to. To trying to sort of like, I don't mean say categorize the intersex athletes whereby they, they produce this level of testosterone, which is a known a known performance enhancing um, substance effect, whatever the word you want to use. And I mean, if you, if you look at some of the studies, and the, depending on the incremental increase, it could be up to nine percent over the eight hundred meters, which is a couple of seconds per lap. So that, mm. that you know that 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 is the difference between winning a gold medal and finishing down the field. And we've seen that Rakasa Semenya, and, and Sonia's right as well. I mean, the, the only the only real categorization we have in in, in sport and track and field is male-female. Obviously, there's different events and all that's fine, but I mean, you can move amongst events within those categories. But the male and the female is the one category that is that is, that is is defined and, and has to be protected. And Sebastian Coe uses words like fairness and respect this week. And this is all about respect, obviously, to someone like Castle Semenya. And that's why they're trying to accommodate her, to allow her to run. But fairness, in other words, for the, the, the vast majority of other women will never beat Castle Semenya because it's impossible for them to get their testosterone levels up to the levels she's got unless they actually take drugs. So, that's the that's the black and white of it. I mean, if if you if you're suggesting, well, you know, it's not her fault, let her run. Well, then you're breaking down the categories completely, and then you say, well, look, let the men run with them too. You have to you have to kind of you have to respect the categories, and if and if you don't do that, well, then then I think you're you're you know you just you're just going to have to. It's it's basically a free for all. But the thing is, you, you mentioned it there yourself. Like the athletics world is made up of freaks. Like Michael Phelps has, for example, his huge wingspan and he's got double jointed elbows and ankles, which basically meant he could kick like a fish with his 
Like that was a genetic advantage that he was born with. It's a genetic advantage as well, but it's it's not it's not. I mean, again, the difference here is like I mean, there's, there's lots of there's lots of very tall people who can't run very fast. Okay, there's lots of there may be lots of double jointed people who can't swim very fast. But I mean, but when you if you have a testosterone level, we're not that, telling them they can't compete. Yeah, but if you have a, tes- a testosterone level that's above what any other woman is going to be able to get, um, no matter how hard they try. I mean, you could go around and find lots of other men who have double jointed big feet and put them in the pool, and there's no there's no problem there. But the difference here is, the, it's a condition whereby women, by definition will not be able to will not be able to reach that level just just by just by not by, by the by their natural situa- situation yeah. i think it's the physiology ra- over the the, phys- the physical differences so you can notice physical differences in athletes who diff- do different sports or different events in in track and field so high jumpers generally have longer legs and you know people who throw the shot or the discus they're b- bigger and muscular and stronger but that's a f- an obvious physical difference whereas the physiology is the makeup of being a man or a woman and that's where you know you have to I suppose internally investigate the athletes and it's a bit like taking a drug test Um, this is taking a test to determine you know which category are you more aligned with the one thing that did strike me about when I was reading your column uh, it was that from the opposite point of view there's a part of my head thinking but surely this girl should be allowed to compete but the flip side was the people that had to compete against her and were obviously feeling we are not in the right category almost now. Like women competing against her might have felt that they were in the wrong category, if you know what I mean. Well, you know, it's not really fair, is it, if you line up in a race and there's absolutely nothing you can do, no matter how fast or, you know, how different you run your race. Like mm. if you go out there and run the first lap of the 800, like you're only running 400, you still can't beat these people who have these, you know, differences in their genetic makeup that makes them, I suppose, lean towards the male category and, you know, the they just have this more powerful advantage. And, and you know, you notice it a lot in the women's 800 metre races. Typically, women don't run the second lap faster, whereas Castor Semenuj, no matter how fast they run the first lap, she can always run the second lap well under 60 seconds, which is not... You know, if you, historically, if you look back through races and performances of athletes, it's not it's not something that women can do. One thing that slightly um, made me wonder about it um, is that they're going to drug, um, oh, well, I'd say Castor Semenya, but um, the women that uh, suffer from this or have this condition. So you are, it's now introducing drugs into a sport where we, where drugs are anathema and we're now going to make somebody underperform by drugging them. We're going to stick a needle in somebody uh, because of a condition they have. Isn't that uh, kind of against the ethos of athletics? It, it definitely is a bit of a contradiction. And I mean, I don't think they'll be sticking needles in people. I think... Uh, well, they'll have to... They'll, well, she will be treated in some way to bring down her testosterone. Well, she probably it's just a, has it's to... It's a daily tablet. It's like kind of a normal contraceptive. I wouldn't be familiar with the, the testosterone-lowering one. But, but, but you're right, Pat. I mean, it's certainly, you know, the idea being that you compete just without any medical assistance at all. And here we are talking about the need for some sort of medical assistance. So you're right, but but again it goes it's it's but it's either that or you just let her you just let 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 her run and then you know it's 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 the only way of dealing with it. It's the, or else you ban her completely. And I, I don't think that's I don't think that's I, the, the Yeah, but I mean and I don't think it's you know you're saying ban her and you know not let her compete or let her compete. I think it's there is definitely a, a whole group of people out there who we don't know about and you know that's definitely going to open a door and people are going to be more aware of other athletes who have the same condition who you know they don't get highlighted as much because maybe they're not as good um, but all of a sudden they're going to be you know pushed out or they're going to be forced to take some drugs to slow them down um, I don't, the whole idea is to level the playing field and to make it fair for everybody and Leveling the playing field. I mean, we do that in, in, in horse racing, <laughs> yeah. you know, where we like um, add weights and yeah, yeah. where we handy uh-huh. where we handicap horses. Mm-hmm. Like we don't do that in athletics. Yeah, well, look again. I think, I think the, the, the bottom line is I'll be interested to get Sonia's view on this. Is do you think this regulation does it go far enough? Does it go too far? Is is it the best it can hope for? I mean, is, I mean, and even Mary, you were talking earlier on. I mean, there isn't there is no solution no here. Solution. You know, it's it's the it's the kind of like what we find something that kind of you know can kind of like please all the people all of the time. But do you think this regulation is goes is goes strong enough? Um, I think it's definitely strong enough, yeah. I think it will, I know they've taken a lot of time and they've spoken to a lot of people and a lot of people have been involved in coming up with this hopeful solution. 
Um, whether it is a solution or not will depend on the reaction of the women who it affects. And I suppose what we don't know is have they been talking to these athletes who it does affect? Like, are they part of this solution? Do they know that this is going on? Um, you know, were they given the chance, OK, well, listen, you can compete now while we're sorting this out. But once it's sorted out, you know, we've got to do something about this. And they know, you know, that they're in this kind of, I suppose, a bit of an anomaly of a category that um, it doesn't occur in all events. And you kind of think, well, did they agree to it and say, OK, well, yeah, no, that is fair. Because all the athletes who are compete are finding it difficult to compete against these athletes are they speak out a lot um, whereas the other the athletes who it actually affects they don't say anything mm. so you want to know you know behind closed doors are they involved in these talks as well and they've said you know okay we've had our chances we've had our opportunities and now we're you know we will you know make this more even it struck me Sonia watching the Commonwealth Games when Samania won again just what a horrible situation it is like I remember you know she crossed the line another kind of huge performance and the kind of coolness towards her from a lot of the other runners in the race you know she was kind of going around <laughs> shaking hands with people some of them were kind of ignoring her a little and there was just it struck you what a, just a desperate situation from both sides from as you say the the women who feel why why am i even running against her there's no point but then her too it must be awful like uh, do you do you have sympathy for her like for from the, um, that I I mean, I I definitely have sympathy for her in that she's in a very difficult situation. But in recent times, I've kind of seen that she's seen that she's got this opportunity right. and she's been given the chance to come back out and to be the best that she can be. I get the sense when she's running that she's not running as hard as she can. And my feeling is that, you know, if this is brought in and, you know, she has knowledge of it mm. and knows it's coming that she's going to go out this summer and break the world record for the 800 metres because she still can because it doesn't come in until November the 1st. Yeah. So she's going to go out and run faster than anyone has, any woman has ever done for 800 metres because there's no holding back now because this is the last throw of the dice. Um, and I feel like that's the way it's been the last few years. I mean, she's been very, very successful. Um, double Olympic champion. You know, she was second in London but the girl in front of her was banned for taking drugs. Um world champion numerous times three times um, Commonwealth double champion just recently so she's achieved absolutely everything except the world record and you know and, and there's been plenty of money and everything going with that as well um, and she's very tolerable with the other athletes but she must understand as well that you know she's definitely got a much greater advantage than them and no matter what they do they, she can't be beaten You think she was deliberately holding back from breaking records or, or running a little bit softer than she could in the last year or two? I would say yes just from looking at it she has to have been like she just everything is done so easily and the thing is why you know win by 50 metres when you can just win by enough you know you don't need I mean well she still does win by you know a good 20 or 30 metres and that's only in the last 120 metres of the race so if you were to go really push yourself from the start, then she could win by 200 metres. Maybe not quite that, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, a long way out. Ian, do you think that this the court of arbitration for sport are going to drive a horse and four through this? It depends. Obviously, it'll have to be appealed at some point to, to that. And when, again, I agree with Sonia. Like, I get this feeling like, I mean, the IWF, they've had two years to come up with this. So be, I'd like to think that they've done their homework on it. And the addition of the 1500 metres, I thought was a bit surprising. Because that's an event where it doesn't seem to be a huge advantage um, for testosterone. There was a couple of events such as, I think, the... the the women's hammer, women's polvo, where they did find advantages, but they didn't actually include those in the event. So I'm not entirely sure it would stick, or what's the word? If you know, the cars wouldn't at least maybe send them back for 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 another another go at it. But I, I but I do think, and listen to Sebco and listen to anybody who's involved in the sport, say this this is probably the best they can do. And if it doesn't work, that goes back to Sonia's original point. Well, now like it's time for a new category. We're going, we're actually going to come up with a, a DSD category or intersex category whereby if your if your testosterone is above a certain level, you run in that. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to see that um, it has been suggested uh, I think a few doctors said this this could happen sooner rather than later and I agree with Mary as well I mean I, I actually have a lot of sympathy for Castor because I 
I've seen her run countless times over the years and I mean she's a very impressive woman I mean she walks into the press conference room and you know she lets you know like who's uh, who's bossing there and it's it's you know it can be quite intimidating in some ways but there is also a sense of you know it's it's you know, maybe she maybe she is taking maybe she is taking advantage of in some ways, but then again, it, you know, it's completely like it's not her fault. She's not cheating in any way. She's not doing anything that she shouldn't be doing. She's just she's just making the most of a situation. But I don't think we've heard the last of it. And Sonia's right as well. I mean, this is not for one second about one or one, one or two athletes. I think it's something like one in a thousand possibly could have a DSD of some sort. So it's um, a, lot, a lot a lot a lot more to go on this. But uh, the sad part is, if she does come out and break a world record this summer, which Sonia says I think she's well capable of doing, what happens then? Will it be ratified? Will it be? Will it be? Will they? Will they take it away come November first when this new rule comes in? I don't know. It's a, it's a bit of a mess. But um, anyway, that that's where we are. But I still think something had to be done. I mean, the, the, there were two options here: you kind of ignore it or you try to address it. And I think that the, they had to try to address it in some way. I think it's a it's a fascinating subject, and it's one that's going to run and run. Um, Thanks so much, Ina Reardon. Thanks so much, Sonia Sullivan, for coming in and discussing it with us. Uh, again, get yourself out to Cabin Teeley on Saturday morning, 9.30. You can register at parkrun.ie if you want to go running and, and see, uh, run in the wake of Sonia Sullivan, I would imagine. <laughs> and uh, I'll be in the middle. <laughs> I'm a pack runner, these no, says. No pacemakers, Sonia, right? <laughs> no pacemakers. <laughs> Thanks very much, lads. Thank you. Added Time is sponsored by Bank of Ireland, proudly supporting the Irish Heart Foundation and its CPO for Schools programme. Equipping secondary school teachers and students with the skills to save lives. In the Irish Times weekend, Gartha Tony Golden callously slain on duty. Connor Lally delves into the harrowing case and the devastation that followed it. In Ticket, your complete culture guide, Brian Boyd explores why Ed Sheeran's music is such a moneymaker. And in the magazine, renowned chef JP McMahon shares six delicious tapas recipes to dish up at home. The Irish Times weekend, your weekends in good hands. Okay, Mary, what else are we going to be watching this weekend and why are you making us listen to the Birdie song? Well, we have to watch the Zurich Classic of New Orleans, it being a golf thingy. Yeah. Now, it might not have been top of your kind of required viewing list it until... It wasn't. Until we heard that it's a team tournament, so pairings rather than individuals. So whoever makes the cut gets to choose... A, a kind of entrance music, a walk-on tune for from Saturday. So um, it's brilliant. So it's now unmissable. I mean, you might switch off after they actually the 10 seconds of the tune plays, but it's unmissable. It's, it's great. It's the perfect sport to do it with too because yeah. other sports people would, you know, they might have like very lots of cool choices, yeah. but with golf you know you're going to get some naff, awful choices. Some of them are pretty amazing, I must say. Um, it's hard to know which... <sighs> Will we go for Careless Whisper as maybe the oddest choice? That's fantastic though. Cody Gribble and John Peterson have chosen Careless Whisper by George Michael. But mm. I think they've properly embraced it because that's kind of ingenious in its, <laughs> because it's so incongruous. I think it that's is. actually, it goes it the full is. circle around and comes around to being brilliant. And would it would it kind of pump you up sufficiently? Absolutely to not. Tee off? No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You'd probably just go for a Use walk out onto the course and forget to take your shot, I think. The other one, um, there's a pairing Harold Varner and Robert Garrigus. Now, Harold is a black man, so of course they've chosen Ebony and Ivory. Oh, but that's fantastic it as well. <laughs> so you're making them all sound good now because they're two really good choices so far. <laughs> there was some boxer a few years ago, I'd never heard of him now, and that name again escapes me. He chose Imagine by John Lennon. <laughs> as his intro. Which, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, would that really have you fired up for round one? Absolutely of? not. No. <laughs> Go out and put a flower in your opponent's hair. (laughs) And hug him. Yeah. What did Homer choose? Oh, why can't we be friends? Right. Yeah, when he was going to fight Frederick Tatum. Well, that's what Homer Simpson's walk-in tune was. So it's quite similar. Yeah, it is really. It would have much the same kind of sentiment. What did, did because aren't um, Harrington and Lowry playing together over there? They have chosen Beautiful Day by you two. But, but like uh, they need to have a good DJ here because you only get 10 seconds of the song so Beautiful Day starts fairly kind mm. of you know at a leisurely pace and doesn't erupt for I think past 10 seconds so I really feel they could have done better than that <laughs> the Wild Rover or something yeah but, anything yeah, Whiskey yeah. in the Jar that, that would have been perfect you know, definitely or the intro to um, 
brewing up a storm. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Mike has brewed up a storm on the PGA website. Mike apparently is a regular commenter there and he's very unhappy about this music thing. Um, he, I think he, he's worried it's going to attract the riffraff and, into golf and he's blaming progressives for all of this. Yeah. I think Mike might be a Trump supporter, I'm not sure. And then when um, a woman called Annie suggested that somebody should have chosen I'll Never Smoke Weed with Willie Again as their entrance song, <laughs> Mike lost the plot. His rage knew no bounds. And he reckoned that all progressives smoke marijuana and that their brains turn to mush, which m- might well be true. But this is you know, from a very gentle idea that golfers choose nice tunes to walk out to. It just descended into war on the PGA website. So that was quite ugly. But uh, William McGirt, um, he's playing with uh, fella Sam Burns. So William left it up to Sam to choose the song with one caveat that it wasn't rap and that it was a country song. Okay. Um, He said, I I said, as long as it's country, we're not listening to crap rap. So they chose a Garth Brooks song. They are. Which one? Um, I can't remember. Was I something about Baton Rouge? Calling Baton Rouge. Can you give us a bar? No, I can't. But I'm very ashamed <laughs> that I've revealed that I knew that so quickly off the top of my uh, off the top of my tongue. That's a bit worrying. The best ever. There was a pitcher with the Milwaukee Brewers, Taylor Youngman, J U N G M A N. His walk up tune was Y M C A. Why? Because young man, there's no need to feel down, young man. Da, da, da. That was genius. That is genius. It is fair play to him. So your your music here is is the birdie song for obvious reasons. Definitely, definitely. I mean, there are other options, of course. Albatross, you could choose. Sultans of Swing, I suppose. Uh, green green grass of home, that kind of thing. Fairway to Heaven would be good, wouldn't Sultans it? Sultans of Swing is very good. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. Better than Circle of Life from Lion King, which somebody has chosen. I, th- these aren't inspiring things. That's they, terrible. Yeah. I, like, I do gold. Like a, there's another a few one. good ones like um, Gold. That's not bad. It's terrible. Justin Rose <laughs> and Henry Stenson have chosen Spandau Ballet Gold. Patrick Reed, who seems not to be a very popular man, he's going to be even less popular. He's chosen Eye of the Tiger. Oh God! Um, so yeah, they're they're not not the best. Patrick Reed should have picked "Humble" by um, <laughs> Kendrick. <laughs> that would that would have been far better. It would have been perfect. Yeah, so um, um, so yeah. So Mike on the PGA website thinks this is a terrible idea and that it's just going to bring the great unwashed to New Orleans to to watch golf. Do you have any idea what Katie Taylor's walk on music? Katie is? Taylor is ACDC Thunderstruck. Excellent. I, I, that, no, I take that. I, anybody who brings in ACDC, that works for me. And uh, perfect, uh, a perfect segue there because we're, <laughs> we're now joined by uh, Johnny Waterson from our sports team. Uh, on Saturday night in Brooklyn, Katie Taylor is going to attempt to unify her WBA lightweight title with the IBF belt held by Victoria Bustos of Argentina. Johnny, the bookies have Katie as a very strong favourite here. Would you agree? Too strong for a, for a fight where one punch can finish it. Um, Katie's the type of fighter who likes to fight. Sometimes she deserts her boxing. She goes toe-to-toe. She's dominated all her professional fights so far, but 10 to 1, I think the odds were for her to win seemed pretty extreme to me. 10 to 1 for Bustos. But 10 to 1 for Bustos, excuse me. It seemed pretty extreme in a two-horse race. Uh, yeah, but uh, it just shows how the punters are seeing it. They're seeing Katie as a favourite. I think everyone sees her as a favourite since she's coming to the scene, her sort of technical ability has been very good, her movement has been great, her explosive qualities have been good, and she's dominated all her fights so far. So, yeah, she is a favourite, certainly. She'll definitely just see this as another step on the road towards, she, she has said that she wants to unify mm-hmm. all the five belts in the lightweight um, weight, hasn't she? She said she wants to unify all the belts, and she's also said that she wants to step up weight division as well. So it's not just her lightweight division she wants to dominate, she wants to dominate heavier divisions as well. And she sees herself as that sort of pioneering boxer that she saw herself as an amateur before this. And now she sees it as a professional and absolutely that's what she wants to do. 
How comfortable do you think Katie has been going from the, the amateur to professional world and all the kind of demands of that, the kind of media hula and everything? Has it been seamless or do, does she ever look a little uncomfortable to you being surrounded by, you know, all the kind of mad, mad stuff? Yeah, it, it was it was quite a change, Mira, moving from amateur to, to professional and mainly selling herself. And Katie has never been an individual or a personality to sell herself. Um, even as Olympic champion, she was reluctant to, to step in front of cameras and microphones. Mm -hmm. And she's still like that. And I, I think it's a I think it's a constant frustration for her manager, Brian right. Peters, and her promoter, Eddie Hearn, yeah. who would like her yeah. to, to be the, the, the trash talking right. professional boxer. Yeah. Uh, the sort of type of boxer they're used to, that's but she, just not hers. It, that's not Katie Taylor. <laughs> right. And it, to answer your question, she has seamlessly moved from one to the other, but she hasn't changed. Right. She is Katie Taylor from Bray right. a, as an amateur, and she's Katie Taylor from Bray right. in Brooklyn okay. this weekend, fighting for uh, another world title. She, she struggles with mm. the, the sales part of the pitch, right. the marketing of professional boxing. She doesn't like doing it, which is why. Maybe this week has been so quiet when Katie yeah. Taylor is going into a, yeah. a, a world title fight and no one really knows about it. And it's because she hasn't done much publicity, she hasn't promoted it, and that's the way she's always been. Right. It kind of <clears throat> makes her stand out in a way, though, that she that she doesn't do the trash talking and you know, she looks fairly unique in that world, you know. Absolutely. I mean, her stock phrase is, I'll let my boxing do the talking. We've heard it all before yeah. from Katie. And in a sense, that has been the way mm -hmm. and you know you've hardened male professionals mm -hmm. who will who have watched her anthony joshua would be one of them mm -hmm. and do like what they see right. in, in terms of the way she moves and boxes and uh, the, the technical mm -hmm. sort of excellence that she has right. in the ring right. and so for, from that aspect she's done what she says she's doing mm -hmm. She's still been sold as a as a major product though. Like she's been twice on Anthony Joshua Bills. This fight is on HBO in the States. Like she they, they definitely see an appeal in her, if you know what I mean. Even if she's not playing the media game herself, the, the people behind her are promoting her and pushing her that direction, aren't they? Yeah, she's had the perfect sort of move from amateur to professional and really they've taken a punt with Katie. She's the first female boxer that Sky have taken on board and really pushed, and they back her heavily. Eddie Hearn also just saw, saw what he liked, I suppose, in her five amateur world titles, mm. six European titles in a row, and unbeaten for 10 years at any real level, and her Olympic medal. So that came before her as a, as a boxer. We all know that that's not enough sometimes to, to, to earn a crust in the professional game. But Katie is a punt for Eddie Hearn and for Sky and for women's boxing, she knows that. And the thing is, can she headline shows on her own and can she take women's boxing from a sort of low level where it is in, in the professional game to, to something more mainstream? And that's what she's trying to do. I read a quote um, from, from Brian Peters during the week that I thought was interesting. Uh, he said, her trainer will look at the opponent and so will I, but Katie doesn't really care. You look at the last fight against Jessica McCaskill. Katie abandoned her boxing skills to a point at times and you ask yourself, why trade punches with a girl who clearly has some power, but she just doesn't believe she can be beaten? And I was thinking, like, it, it's part of the kind of contradiction in Katie <clears throat> there again. She has the skills to do this, but like leaving yourself open like that could lead to yourself being beaten. But the fact that she regularly stops <clears throat> boxing and starts fighting makes her hugely entertaining to watch in the ring from a, from, from a punter's point of view. You're right, and uh, it is a contradiction, and she is a professional. Mm. She always has been a professional, even as an amateur, which is one of her strengths, and her, her, her narrow focus on what she's doing has always been a strength. But she is a fighter, and even in the amateur days with her dad, I could see Pete throwing his eyes to heaven in the corner when she goes toe-to-toe, -to -toe because she's she just fell out of step with the, the sort of chess game she was playing in the ring and she just wanted to beat the girl and so she'd drop all the tactics her dad told her and she still does it now as a professional she just stops what she's been told and she says I'm going to beat this girl and she goes toe to toe and you, you have these 30-40 second flurries where she is out punching her opponent who very often is a better puncher than she is mm -hmm. but she'll do it and she hasn't been hurt so far 
but uh, it's it's a it's a dangerous ploy, but it's part of her instinct as a boxer. It's just part of the way she is, and in a sense, it's a small little flaw she has, which I think makes her more more endearing, if that's the word, <laughs> yeah. that she will do that. Um, but she does it all the time, and Brian Peters is absolutely right. So I'd imagine that makes her people pretty nervous, but. With her track record, it's hard to argue, I suppose, with, with um, how, how she goes about her business in the ring. Yeah, it, it does make her people nervous. It always has. Because if you go into a, a toe-to-toe and you're just, two, two boxers are just slinging shots at each other, mm. it just makes it more of a, a, a opportunity right. for, for the lesser boxer to land a punch when she shouldn't be given that opportunity. Mm. And, you know, K- Katie sometimes levels the fight when she should be commanding the fight and right. I think that's what worries them. If if a blow lands and it lands in the right place she could be in trouble. Mm-hmm. It hasn't happened yet because I suppose we all underestimate her a little bit and she's probably in control of that as well. Right. We, we don't see it like that. We just see two boxers throwing punches at each other but probably Katie's controlling that as she normally controls the fight. Right. <clears throat> well, hopefully hopefully none of those punches land on Saturday night. You can watch it on television if you want to. It's on Sky Sports Action. It'll probably be starting at in around 2am we think but don't hold us to that. It's hard to say and you can all run out and put your money on Katie Taylor at 25 to 1 on if you, if you want to do that. Uh, Johnny Watson, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Right, we're joined now by Tony Evans, uh, football writer and journalist, author of the book Two Tribes, Liverpool, Everton and a City on the Brink. Uh, this, the book is mainly based around the 1985-86 season, Tony, but I was kind of fascinated by um, something at the start, and this is going to be a little bit parochial, but I have to ask it. I hadn't realised the depth of the links between Ireland and Liverpool and how the manner in which Irish famine refugees were looked down upon actually kind of contributed to the relationship between Liverpool Liverpool and the rest of England? Oh, yeah, to find the relationship. It, um, it, the whole discourse between Liverpool and England is based on the, the Irishness of the city. I mean, where I come from as an Irish nationalist MP until 1929, you know, it's a, the notion of Scouse is a very new thing. It, it didn't appear in the Oxford English Dictionary until after the Second World War. And it probably didn't actually germinate in Liverpool until 1919, 1920. And it, it grew up, it was a, 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 it was a, a term of abuse towards the uh, the people in the Scotland Road area who regarded themselves as Irish, and it was taken as a point of pride. I mean, the the the, the entire scousers, you know, a uh, uh, wingers, a uh, lazy, a uh, workshy, is based on all the the ideas the English had about the Irish, and um, and it's one of those things that uh, I think. In Liverpool, it's been largely forgotten, but it shouldn't be because our whole identity is based on Irishness. That's great. All the negative, negative implications and connotations of it. Yeah, well, yeah, it, 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 it's how the English see. I've traditionally seen the Irish. You can trace it all the way back until the, you know, even before the famine. You can trace it back into the the, the papers of the eighteen twenties. Punch, you know, referring to to the Irish as like uh, apes, a gibber, gibber in a language. You know, it's uh, and they can be found in the um, in 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 the poorer districts of Liverpool and London. And of course, London was so big that uh, people became subsumed to, you know, in the, the sort of became Cockneys, became Londoners. But in Liverpool, the, the, the famine population became the majority and a new identity was formed. And I'm frankly, I'm proud of the links. And you know what? The English can stuff themselves. <laughs> um, the book itself is set during the 1985-86 season. Um, but the run into that, the political climate in England was particularly toxic at the time. Can you explain uh, for us what it was like? Yeah, I mean, the the, the the changes in the economic situation left Liverpool hanging out on a limb. But also, worse than that, the Thatcher government regarded 
Liverpool as the most difficult not to crack in their words of you know of, of all the opposition towards the, the Conservative government, and they they actually talked in cabinet about a managed decline of the city where they deliberately were thought of withdrawing resources from the city so people would have to leave, you know this was um, and you know an act of economic vindictiveness they were considering, and. Um, and Liverpool battled on the Liverpool, the Liverpool Labour City Council called the Milton Council at the time, as if like uh, were parachuted in from a different you know country, from Russia or somewhere, stood up to the Thatcher government and set out a, a series of policies based on maintaining jobs, services, and building houses, and won by a landslide, while the rest of Britain went in a landslide for uh, Thatcherism. And there was a face-off, and of course, Liverpool was in no position to win because you know they, they changed they, they changed the goalposts um, whenever the city council did anything uh, positive. They changed the rules to make sure that they they, they couldn't do it, and but it, it created a a massive battle between Liverpool and Whitehall. Liverpool has been a political outlier in England for years now, didn't? Aren't they the only place outside Liverpool that voted against Brexit? Well, yeah, Liverpool was um, massively against Brexit. You know, it's uh, well, Liverpool has a different set of political philosophies to uh, to England in particular, um, and you know, it, it's it's a city that has a clear identity politically, and it's uh, certainly not an identity that's linked much to London and certainly not to Middle England. Tony, it's hard to remember kind of at this remove with the Premier League popular all over the world, but uh, Heisel and the Bradford fire happened so close to each other and attendances had fallen. There was no football on television because of a blackout. And some people at the time ahead of the season genuinely thought that the game was in its death throes. Well, it wasn't just Heisel and it wasn't just Bradford. I mean, you know, at, at Birmingham on the last day of the season, the same day as Bradford, a 15-year-old Ian Hambridge was killed before that earlier on in the, in the previous season in uh, March 1985, Millwall rioters at Luton. Um, you know, it was a really violent time. In the semi-final, the, the FA Cup semi-final of um, 1985 at Goodison, Liverpool played Man United, and that was probably outside Rome in '84, the most violent day I've ever seen. It was, I mean, 1984 and 1985, they were a violent year. The miners' strike was, um, you know, was was on. It was uh, there was trouble across the, the whole of the United Kingdom. There was. Um, you know, there was major football matches all the time. And, you know, beamed into, on the television every night into the screens was what was going on in the six counties. And it was just this atmosphere of violence. And football was, uh, and still probably is, even though it's, uh, it, it's changed a, a lot, was the biggest expression of working-class culture. And the Thatcherism saw it as a, a threat to common, decent people and, and, and good, nice society. And, um, and people didn't want to know. You know, it's, um, people didn't want to go to the matches. The Sunday Times called it a, a slum game um, watched by slum people in slum stadiums. And, you know, it was an outrageous sort of view of, of football fans, but that's the way it was. You'd never think of it in the Premier League age, but that's the way people saw football. This week, of course, we got the, a reminder, maybe a little uh, throwback to those violent times with what happened um, before the Liverpool-Roma game. But in those days, was there just that constant sense of danger that you were expecting trouble? Was that the atmosphere of those times going to games? Well, you know, I, I went to away matches on my own um, with my mates from, what, 1975, because uh, before that, when my dad he died that year. And so I went with, a, I was 14 when I started going, and I, I would say I went regularly all the way to uh, Hillsborough in 1989. And I, um, I probably, you saw trouble, you saw the illusion of trouble, you saw, like, Great groups of people charged each other. Some run away, some come back. It was street ballet for the most part. It was all posturing. The actual 
violent incidents I was involved in. There's probably a handful um, in all that time. But there was that illusion of danger. And I'll be honest, it's added to the the whole the, the mm. thing of going the match. You felt like an outlaw. And and that was you know for for a young man a young you know sort of a young kid it was you know it, it felt great that way. The reality was, most people who go to football games didn't really fight. As I say, everyone there was a lot of posturing. There was there was less blows thrown than uh, people would have you believe. I hadn't realised Tony until. I read the book back in my head that season was all about the rivalry of Liverpool and Everton but actually West Ham played a huge role in the season and came very close to winning the title and they also sort of had a new superstar in Frank McAvenny and amusingly a new superstar that nobody knew what he looked like because there was a TV blackout over the over a rights dispute but he was a new type of footballer wasn't he? Oh he certainly was I mean the amazing thing is if Liverpool would have drawn on the last day of the season uh, West Ham and Everton would have been in essentially a playoff for the title on the on the Monday afterwards the last game of the season um, Frank McAvenny he comes down from Scotland and no one has any idea about him and um, he was a sensation he scored 18 goals before Christmas and no one no one knew what he looked like because it wasn't on the telly. Uh, ITV took him out on, in London over Waterloo Bridge and stopped people. And he said, like, you know, it's um, uh, who just spotted West Ham? What do you think, Frank McAvenny? Yeah, oh, he's magnificent. And he said, would you like to meet him? And they were all in shock. And the thing is, he, he the, the the red top editors, the the Daily Mirror, and in particular the Sun, realised suddenly that football. Sold not just on the back pages but on the um, you know sort of the front of the paper, and Frank became a poster boy for that because people said his, his club was string fellows fellows as much as um, West Ham, you know he was champagne blondes, page three girls, you know, and he he, he lived the wildlife and um, while scoring all these goals. He's a shocking and, hairdo, Tony, hadn't he? Oh, it was terrible, it was terrible. <laughs> and, and you know, the, the thing, it wasn't just there, dude. He dyed his hair blonde because he was natural redhead. <laughs> but apparently um, the rest of the team didn't know until they got in the shadow, showers with him and they saw his, um, they saw his pubes. Um, and then they, then they were appalled. They called him Lulu because... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, but he he, he come in and he was a huge character, and um, he's a lovely man, by the way, and and come in and um, and and so he was the king of the East End for a while, and the funny thing is, he kind of became a you know sort of the the Thatcherite, you know, um, get rich quick. See the fame, grab it quickly, and and you know, and sort of wring every last bit out of it, sort of symbol, and a most unlikely symbol because he was from Glasgow, he was from the, um, you know, sort of from an Irish background, and um, and had views that Margaret Thatcher would find reprehensible. <laughs> I tell you, the people giving out about fixture congestion these days don't know they're born as well. West Ham played nine, or no, five games in the last nine days of the season. Oh yeah, because it was a really terrible winter. It was so cold. It was untrue. It was uh, it was horrible. And loads of games got um, got called off. The the amazing thing is Chelsea were in the title race as well, as in April, and they played. Um, they, they drew nil nil at Southampton, and if they would have won all the games in hand, they would have gone top of the league. And the next day, the day after, they played in a bizarre um, competition which was set up that season called the Full Members' Cup, which you know still continues. And won us at Wembley in a, a wild game against Man City, winning 5-4. And, um, and after those two games in 24 hours, the bottom fell out of them. They, they got beat. Uh, West Ham beat them 4-0. They got beat 5-0 by QPR. And the title challenge uh, evaporated. So what a pyrrhic victory it was for them winning the full members cup the whole season Tony built to the kind of crescendo that was the the first ever all Merseyside FA Cup final and it was a particularly it was kind of like a healing occasion really wasn't it well, yeah, because a year before Liverpool had been involved at Heisel, and um, which had led to the ban on English clubs in Europe, which was the, the ban was uh, the catalyst for the ban was Margaret Thatcher, who demanded the FA withdraw the clubs, and um, 
and of course, then UEFA took up the you know sort of they they followed on and, and carried the ban. Um, I think in in reasonable situation they would have banned Liverpool and frankly Liverpool should have been banned I mean I was at Heisel um, you know I, I, I was in that, that section where it all happens Liverpool should have been banned well we should still be banned probably if you know to, you know so as if there was any justice done um, the but they, they, they banned the other clubs, which was unfair, and, and particularly on Everton, who had won the league and would have had the chance to win, that won the league and the Cup Winners' Cup and would have had the chance to go for the European Cup. But, you know, there was no there was no resentment. Well, there was little resentment. There was little bitterness towards Liverpool from Everton in particular because they understood that it could have happened to anyone. Um, you know, Heiser was in such a mess Um you know, as a stadium, it was so dangerous, and there was there was little resentment and built up to the cup final. Everton were the best team, you know. They they were they were a great side. They won the title the year before. They bought Gary Lineker. He scored forty goals that season. They win the title the next year, but Liverpool had the sort of mental toughness that uh, you know um, Everton didn't have at the time because they were serial winners. And it built up to this game at Wembley. But the most important part of the game was the eyes of the world were on scousers like there was a, a feeling that groups of scousers gathered together couldn't behave they were feral you know uh, violent and thieving they went to Wembley and Everton got beat and instead of all the Everton fans leaving instead of there being trouble between the two sets of fans Evertonians stood on the terraces at the end watched the cup being presented to Liverpool and chanted um, en masse Merseyside it was it was a massive thing it showed one football wasn't naturally a violent game two that scousers could behave themselves when they were out of the city and 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 three that football was about sport and there was a sense of sportsmanship alive and it, it was a great moment for the city Evertonians understood implicitly despite their pain and trust me they had a lot of pain that the, the, the city needed this show of strength and this show of solidarity. And it, it's that that's the reason for the book, really. It, it's, you know, if you just tell the story of a season, a football season, well, who cares, really? You know, this was a bigger thing. This was a, a, a one of the most remarkable things that's ever happened in football history. It definitely laid the foundations for a lot of nice, um, good, positive changes that came. But I just want to actually um, touch quickly on something with you, because we saw the the bad old days, as it were, rear their heads during the week. We have um, the Irishman Simon Co- or Sean Cox is um, in hospital at the moment, battling for his life after an incident at Anfield during the week. Next Wednesday, the Liverpool fans are heading to Rome and the Stadio Olimpico. Would you be nervous as to what um, the Liverpool fans are heading into next Wednesday? Nervous and crap on myself. I was in Rome in 1984, and um, it, it, I wrote the book on it, literally, uh, a book called I Don't Know Where It Is, but I love it about Liverpool in 1983-84. And that night in Rome uh, in, in 1984 was one of the most horrible nights of my life and many other Liverpool fans' life. Ro- Roma were playing at home in the European Cup final. It, they they had um, they believed that they were going to win it. You know, it's like the whole city was bedecked in Roma colours. The European Cup was was painted everywhere. They hadn't they hadn't figured on Liverpool beating them, which they did on penalties. And when when they did before the match, actually there was loads of violence. They, loads of Liverpool fans were slashed and stabbed by the Roma Ultras. After the match, the police exploded in rage. I've never seen nothing like it. It was, and, and I've been around the block. You know, I was at Hillsborough and Heisel. Um, you know, all, 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 the, all the big days in Liverpool history, I was there. This was something else. I've, it was unbelievable. And they've hated us with a vengeance since. If, if you want to know how deeply burned it, it is into Roma psyche, um, De Bartolome, the Roma captain, who took a penalty that night uh, on the 10th anniversary of the game, he shot himself in the chest. Now, he had problems with depression and he had problems with um, with money, but it's no coincidence that 
he kills himself on the 10th anniversary. Roma hate Liverpool with a vengeance. And I've been warning about this for a long time. And, um, and we saw it last week. And also, Rome's the only place in Europe where, and probably the football world, where football fans are regularly targeted and stabbed. They have, um, they have a thing they call punchicati, which is elevating, stabbing people in the backside into a cultural symbol. Um, why? Why the backside? The, the, the backside because you, because you don't kill people, so you're less a charge if you do it. And if you talk to uh, to, to believers in it, including back in nineteen uh, two thousand eight, the chief of police in Rome, they said like, "What is it? It's a tradition that a tradition that dates back." To, uh, to to medieval times and dueling and where it is is simply getting the uh, getting the first blow in there an opponent and as I say they've turned into a cultural symbol and it's disgusting one one of the worst places for a football fan in Europe to go and I'm extremely nervous for myself and any other scouser that goes there next week or Liverpool fan. Okay, well let's hope uh, those fears are unfounded. Um, Tony Evans, author of Two Tribes, Liverpool, Everton and a City in the Brink. It's a, a brilliant book for the Merseyside football fan in your life. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure. That's it for the week. Uh, thanks to Sonia Neen for joining me in the studio. Thanks to Johnny Warson for talking all things Katie. Thanks to Tony Evans for joining us on the line. Thanks to Declan on the desk. And most of all, thanks to Mary Hannigan for gracing us with her presence. Thank you, Pat. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Um, Malachi Clerken will be back next week, as far as we know anyway. You can contact me on Twitter or you can email the show on addedtime at irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Added Time is sponsored by Bank of Ireland, proudly supporting the Irish Heart Foundation and its CPO for Schools programme, equipping secondary school teachers and students with the skills to save lives.